topic today is called Following Christ, and the scripture passage comes from Mark. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gary. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're at the center point right now. If you open a Bible, you'll see there are two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament points towards Jesus, the promised Messiah. The New Testament tells you what happened when Jesus uh, came into the world, his, what he said, how he taught, the, his miracles, how he interacted with people. At the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the detailed eyewitnesses' accounts of what happened. And Mark, the shortest of the Gospels, written, um, well, it, was, it wasn't written by Peter because Peter was illiterate, he was a fisherman, but um, his, one of his followers, Mark, wrote down his memory of what Jesus had said, and that is the Gospel of Mark. Sixteen short chapters. And we are now in chapter 8, the very middle of the gospel. And we're in a section that sort of defines the gospel of Mark. Mark shares with us how Jesus began his ministry, how he began to do miracles to reveal who he was, how he gathered the disciples, how he began to train them, how he began to lead them. And that is what Mark is about right until we get to chapter 8. And at that moment, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means the anointed one of God in Greek, the Christ. And as soon as that happens, the whole gospel shifts. Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem and the cross. And he begins to be explicit about who he is to his disciples. He begins to intensively prepare them for what is about to happen. He tells them that he must suffer, that he must die, that he will be re resurrected. And here, he begins to teach them what it means truly to be a disciple. He's begun to reveal what it means that he is Jesus Christ, the Christ, the anointed one. And now he begins to share what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? So let's have a look at it. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up that cross and follow me. Now, 
Peter was not a literary man, and his account is very abrupt. Usually he says, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But notice here, then he called a crowd to him along with the disciples and said, this is a way of slowing down the story, the narrative. What Jesus is saying here is important. And notice he's speaking not just to his disciples, the 12 that have been following him, but to the crowd. This is an important teaching, but it is not some specialized teaching for the disciple elite or the elite leaders. He's going to say some demanding things, and it applies to the crowd as much as his disciples. It applies to everyone who would follow Jesus. By the way, um, disciple just means student, but not a theoretical student. It has the uh, sense of somebody who learns by doing, hands-on. You don't learn from books, you learn by doing. So a disciple is anyone who takes up the, world, the work of Jesus and begins to do the things that he did. And what must a disciple do? To deny themselves, first thing. This is the same word that is used of Peter when he denies Christ uh, after Jesus is, erected, is arrested. Um, and so it means, in Peter's case, to deny one's own master. In this sense, it means to give up mastery of oneself. To allow Jesus to be the true master of your life. To give up self-interest, allow the needs of Jesus and of other people to shape your life and the course of your life. Essentially to give up ultimate control or direction. To trust yourself to God and God's purposes. To acknowledge that God knows better than you what your life is about and where it should be going. And take up their cross and follow me. This is the first time that Jesus mentions the cross. And of course, to our ears, when we hear the cross, it's completely obvious what he's talking about. It's natural. It's what Christianity is all about. Many of us wear crosses around our necks. But remember what he, what, how this would have been heard by his disciples. The, Rome, the cross was a Roman symbol. It was a practice of Romans to crucify people that got in their way. The most terrible death that the inventive Romans could come up with. And so when Jesus says cross, that's what's going to jump into the minds of these followers. It's like he's talking here not about some pleasant Christian symbol. He's talking about a death march. He's talking about humiliation, misery, suffering, one of the most gruesome and possibly one of the worst deaths you can have. To be nailed up and humiliated in public as you slowly die and give up your last breath. And so we shouldn't be too quick to turn this into a metaphor. You know, oftentimes people, when they talk about taking up one's cross, they're talking about some kind of general hardship or sacrifice that goes along with the Christian life. But while there's certainly truth in that, there is suffering in this life. If you follow Jesus, 
you will have inconveniences. Don't be so quick to give up this idea of suffering and death. Because that's what's going to happen to Jesus, and that's what happened to many of his followers, nearly all the disciples. And right now, in our world, Christians are being persecuted. They're being tortured. They're being killed right now in our world, in our day and age. When I became a pastor uh, 30 years ago, there were eight vows that I made to this church when I became a pastor of this church. And one of the vows is this. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account? And I knew in general terms about that promise, but I was so filled with the joy of that day, I didn't really think about it when I said it. And afterwards, um, Kathy Keller, uh, Tim Keller's wife, came up to me and congratulated me. And she said, she'd been to many ordinations. And she said, every time she heard anybody make that vow, it gave her chills. Because for some Christians, that means exactly what Jesus went through. Persecution, suffering, violence, and death. And that could happen to some of you. Don't take this call to discipleship and to pick up your cross as some kind of sentimental metaphor. For some Christians, it means going all the way. It's a serious thing. And follow Jesus. Learning by Jesus' example what it means to be a Christian. Doing the things that he did, caring about the things that he cared about, making his priorities your priorities. To be Christ-like is to suffer, is to take up a cross. And if we would be disciples, we should follow Jesus' example. But what a miserable way of life. Self-denial and sacrifice, suffering, persecution, maybe death, living for others rather than from oneself. Isn't there enough suffering in the world already? Why not aspire to pina coladas and a nice beach somewhere safe and warm? What's wrong with chilling out with Netflix and a pizza? Why on earth would anybody want to follow the example of Jesus? What is it about that that is compelling? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now in these, in these verses 36, 35 and 36, this word life is used three times and it's a complicated word. It has a range of meanings. It's a translation of the Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word suke. And it can be translated as life like the fact that you're alive rather than dead. But also it has connotations of being spiritual, being uh, truly alive, having a soul. If we go to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2, where God creates human beings, we read this. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Breathed is this word ruach. It is God's spiritual breath. In the Old Testament, the spirit is referred to as the breath of God. God created a human being. The word, by the way, there, man, is Adamah. And the word for dirt or ground is Adamah. So what is literally being said in Genesis is that God created a dirt creature, an earthling, a man of the soil. And into this dirt creature, he breathed the spirit of life. And so you have the combination in a human being of this earthly life, literally earthy life, organic life, material life, and spiritual life. And those two together form a human being. And so when Jesus is saying here, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it, this is play on words. You can think of him talking about earthly life and spiritual life, heaven and earth. Our earthly life is our organic life. It's the reason we have to eat food. It's why we eat the food of the earth to survive, to grow. But that by itself is just animal existence. In addition, human beings have a spiritual life, a spiritual nature breathed into them personally by God when they are created. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Same word. Suke. Soul is life. It is spirit. It is the essence that God gives us to make us fully spiritual human beings. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Our souls, our spiritual natures, are a gift from God, who is pure spirit. It is what distinguishes from animals. It is what distinguishes human life from mere animal existence. And because it is a gift from God, it does not belong to us, when we sever our relationship with God, that's what we lose. That is why sin is so devastating. We lose our spiritual connection with our Creator. We become mere animals, animal existence driven by our hungers and appetites and desires in this world. You know, I was, um, when I was a kid, one of the most terrifying movies I ever saw was Pinocchio by Walt Disney. I don't know if they still show it because it's absolutely terrifying to children. And there's a particular scene in it where the bad kids, for some reason the bad kids are all boys, um, the bad kids are taken or are allowed to go to Pleasure Island where they can do all the things that bad boys want to do. And they, they chop up stuff, they vandalize, they gamble, they, what are they, they, they chew tobacco, they do everything that a child the highest wickedness that a child may could possibly think about. And they have a great time. Pinocchio's with them. It's like a Las Vegas for children. They indulge their appetites. They follow their hungers and do whatever they want. 
But as each child indulges the worst of themselves, they begin to change. They begin to lose their humanity. They begin to develop these crazy ears. They begin to lose their voice. They begin to bray like donkeys. And behind Pleasure Island, there is this shipyard where the children who've now become donkeys and can't even speak and bray and are just animals are put into crates and shipped off to God knows where. Absolutely terrifying if you're a child. Well, I don't know exactly. I mean, the Pinocchio is based on an old it Italian folktale, but the, the essence of it is exactly, I think, what is being said here. You can choose to live for earthly pleasure. You can indulge your earthly, literally your earth nature, your desires, your instincts, your hungers, your habits that are just about your physical being here in the world. In doing that, you are going to lose your soul. You are going to lose the thing that makes you human. You are going to become like an animal. Now, animals have a great life, some of them. A lot get eaten. But, you know, they follow their passions, they do what they want, and then they die, and they're gone. If that's all you want out of life, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you and I will die. But there is more, and that's why Jesus came. Look at the end of verse 35. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Gospel means good news. Yes, we will all die. Our animal existence will come to an end. But there is more. There is good news. There is a gospel. There is a savior, Jesus Christ, and that's why he came. Another movie that I loved, Titanic. You remember the story of the Titanic, this unsinkable ship, and it's crossing the Atlantic, and it runs into an iceberg, and it sinks. Once again, it's all the guys. All the guys are lost. Um, there's a scene in there where uh, Cameron, who made the movie, pulls back. You, you, you have this immense Titanic ship, this huge human creation, this glorious creation. But then the camera pulls back, and you see this tiny little dot of light, light in the middle of this vast, dark ocean. And you realize how trivial their existence is on that little boat. To them, this titanic boat. After the ship hits the iceberg, it comes to a stop. And it's a completely still night. It's beautiful. And the party goes on on the ship. People are dressed up. The music is playing. There's beautiful food on the tables. Everything is wonderful. People play with the ice that has fallen from the iceberg. But underneath, there is a terrible reality unfolding. The side of the ship has been split open, and it is filling. And the designer of the ship, he walks through the crowds like a dead man, saying, in two hours, everything you see, this beautiful, uh, ship, the beautiful linen and cutlery, the clothes, everything is going to be on the bottom of the ocean. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
there is a bigger story than just the material existence that we experience. It is wonderful. It is shiny and bright. We can do extraordinary things. We can indulge our appetites. For most of us in the West, for most of us in Hoboken, the, the biggest decision we have to make is what variety of food we want to eat. What a miracle that is, by the way. But there is a bigger reality, and that's what Jesus comes to inform us of. This life is not going to last. Our material existence is going to run out. Every one of us in this room, one day, is going to die. Our organic life has a limited lifespan. However, we also have access to this spiritual life. When you become a Christian, when you are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit, just as Adam received the Holy Spirit when he was created. God's Spirit breathed in. Every Christian receives that Spirit again, is reborn, is renewed, has a new spiritual nature. And we are now invited, remember it's a gift, the gift that belongs to God comes with a charge, a responsibility. Jesus invites us to be about his business, to share his gospel, to follow his example, and to follow his journey. Yes, there is this extraordinary life beyond this life, but because this life is collapsing, is dying, is sinking, we are charged with the responsibility of sharing Jesus and the new life with those that don't know him. It's as if we were passengers on the Titanic and we knew where the lifeboats were. It's our job to share it with people, to tell people. And if we don't do that, then these are pretty terrible words. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. How do we please our Father? How do we please Jesus? How do we acknowledge the gift of this Holy Spirit? We are not ashamed to be Christians. We're not ashamed to identify ourselves as Christians. We are not afraid to share the gospel with those around us. We have been given this amazing gift by this amazing person and given this an amazing responsibility. And Jesus is saying, don't let your shame, your fear of other people's opinion, don't let your reputation get in the way of sharing the reason that Jesus came into the world, sharing the gospel. You know, I didn't internalize this um, aspect of Jesus until uh, I was in uh, a Korean church in Queens. In Asian culture in general, shame is a big deal. Being um, shamed is the worst thing that can happen to most people. And protecting your reputation uh, being unashamed is an important part of being a civilized person. 
And the thing that struck my friend in Queens, and, and actually was a big deal in the church there, was the idea that Jesus on the cross was naked. That he was exposed. That his death was so shameful. That he would give up his reputation and become a naked criminal writhing in agony in front of crowds of people. For my friend, and I, I think it should be for us too, when we see Jesus up there, we should recognize that he did not care for his reputation in this world. You know? He was and is Lord of all. He is king. He is glorious. He is perfect. He is holy. And yet he gave it all up to become a criminal. Naked, vulnerable, exposed. He took on our shame so that we wouldn't have to be ashamed. He became a spectacle so that we would live with his father forever, clothed in his righteousness and his beauty. Why did he do that? To save us from ourselves. To save us from the sinking ship. To give us his name and his reputation and his relationship with his father. To make us part of the family, glorious for all eternity. That's why we should never be ashamed to call ourselves Christians. We should never be ashamed to share ourselves and the gospel story with those around us. Jesus will never be ashamed of us if we follow his example. Jesus is there to welcome us home, to give us an alternative to this material life, to give us an eternal future, because spiritual life is forever. And only when we embrace that can we be fully human. That's what Jesus is saying here. Follow me, become my disciple, and I will show you what full humanity looks like, what it means to be a responsible human being, what it means to be in relationship with your creator in a wholesome way. All we have to do is trust and follow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that through Christ, not only have you revealed yourself, but you have revealed a way home, a way back to you. Lord, we are tempted by this world. Everyone in this room, including me, we are tempted by our old way of life, our old habits, old patterns of behavior, things that the world tells us are important. Lord, help us turn away from all of that. Help us turn to you. Help us be about your business. Help us follow you despite any other voices in our life. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.